0: Become better than God. Adam and Eve tried to become better than God by eating of the fruit. They tried. We do it all the time. We say, We are better than God. We know better than God. We're, we're our own king. But he establishes this. He realizes that God is who he's going to and that he is a sinful person. And because he knows God's holiness and he is a sinful person, he knows he needs a Savior. And he's crying out. But notice when he says he's crying out here, he's not crying out for God to fix his situation. He's not crying out for God to magically undo or make everything right. He's crying out that God will hear him. God will hear his pleas. He says it twice. He wants God to hear, because when God hears, God is moved to action as well. And that might not be the action we want him to do, but he's moved to action. And we see that throughout the rest of the Old Testament as well. But God hearing is better than God not hearing. God hearing our hearts is a huge first step because we're crying out. The psalmist is crying out for pleas of mercy. So his emotional response has triggered, sorry, his emotions have triggered an emotional response which is crying out. He's doing something. And now we're going to start integrating in that knowledge, that analytical thinking with this first section here that says in verse 3 and 4, But if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So his emotional response triggers an an action. And that action is crying out. And he's saying, in God there is forgiveness. There's really cool imagery here of a courtroom. You have this courtroom setting. God is sitting up on, as a judge, I, you guys, by yourself, standing at the defendant table. And God is reading off your iniquities your sins, your wrongdoings, your shortcomings, the times you stumbled and walked away. Every single line item. And you look at that, I go, wow, if just from the past couple days I'd be on the ground sobbing. There's more to that than just that physical standing. Who can stand? Who can? If God started reading off iniquities, who's going to be like, yep, I'm still perfect. I didn't do any of those. There goes pride, so you're done too. Um but who can stand before God when he's reading that off? And if if I'm on the ground sobbing after a few days of reading off of those, almost 40 years of how big of a book that's going to be, and he's reading them off. Who can stand before God because of their iniquities? He knows that there's forgiveness in God, though, because he says that there. There's forgiveness in God. And this is way before Jesus comes. He's back here generations before Jesus, and he knows God is forgiving. We have more to the story, which is awesome. We have the whole, the whole New Testament where Jesus came and you insert him into that courtroom, and he walks up as the surprise witness or surprise you know, advocate on your part, and he walks up to you He whispers in your ear, hey bro, I got this. I think Jesus is cool, so you say bro. Um, I got this. And he stands in front of you and he tells God, he's good. He's my child. I'll take all that sin. I'll take all that iniquity. I'll take all of those wrongdoings. I'll take it and I'll pay for it with the blood that I shed. We have more to the story. We have more to hope in in this But the psalmist knew it. He knew in God there is forgiveness. So his emotional response triggered action, which he cried out to God, and he knows in God there's forgiveness. And then we have the the next part here. In God there is hope. So I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. In God there is hope. And again, the psalmist here doesn't know the hope that we're at today. He knows that God's promised a lot of things. And when God promised something, He keeps it. We can go back And here's a cheat course for the youth. We go back to Genesis chapter 3, where we're going to kind of go through for the next several months. Genesis chapter 3, God makes a promise there that man, the seed of man, will crush the head of the serpent, will crush evil, will crush the adversary. Back in chapter 3. Then we move on. We see Noah, and there's a promise made to Noah. He's not going to flood the earth again. And then we got the Abrahamic covenant, where God says, I'm going to make your descendants more than the, sea, the sand on the sea, more than the stars of the sky. You are going to have so many, and you're going to have land, and you're going to have all these other things. And then we have the Davidic covenant, where God said to David, You're going to be throned forever. Your line will be on the throne forever, reestablishing what should have been always before we try to flip it. We try to make ourselves God. God was king, man was below him, and We know that hope at the end, that that's Christ on the throne. It's not a physical David on the throne. It is Christ forever reigning on that throne. But that restores that order, and we have that hope. And that's the long term. There's also a short-term hope in here that that this uh, psalmist is writing about. He, He brings up this imagery more than the watchman for the morning. He mentions it twice. Something mentioned twice is worth looking into at least. So, sure a lot of people have never stood post or stood watch before. Uh, It's probably the most boring thing you can do in your life. It could be four, eight, twelve, sixteen hours. It could go on forever it seems. But this imagery here is of a watchman standing post. He knows his job is vital. He's hoping for morning. Because morning, not as many attacks kind of happen. It's way easier to attack at night. The job is important, but all they're doing is Staring at the horizon. Hoping they see that sunrise. Hoping that it comes soon. It's like watching a pot. It's never going to boil. Watching, oh oh, nope, nope, nope. That wasn't. And over and over. But he knows that this darkness that he's currently in, this this state that he's currently in, is going to pass. When? It's on God's timing. But he knows it will pass. He also knows that something more is going to happen which we already know happened with Christ dying. And then we hope even beyond that. We have hope when God returns and reestablishes that kingdom again forever. And He reigns here over us in, in everything. So we can look at that and go, the morning is coming. It's coming. It's coming. And we can look forward to that hope. We can look forward to all of that. And that's what the psalmist is talking about here. So he knows in his mind... In God, there's forgiveness, and in God, there is hope. And then we move on to, in God, there is love, and there is also redemption. I'm going to kind of combine those two to to save some time here. Um, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. So, steadfast love. In God, there's love and redemption. We see God's love throughout Scripture. He's always there. When his people cry out for him, he's there. We see that with Jesus. He came. We have one of the most famous verses most people know. For God to love the world is steadfast, undying love for us. And because of that love, he chose to redeem us. I think redeem is a word we don't use a whole lot outside of, of the church, um, and we, we I, I just think it's such a cool word, so we're going to talk about it for a second here, but it is very unique. So I don't go to the grocery store very often, but when I do, this comes to my mind, this redemption, because redemption is bought, picked up, brought out of the marketplace with a price. So it's like this, this bought mentality, redeemed. So we go in the supermarket, I go in the supermarket, and I start looking for whatever it is. And I grab some produce, make sure it's the right color, I make sure it's not squishy if it's not supposed to be. Um, I make sure there's no brown spots, I make sure that it has everything that I think is the perfect example of the produce that it's supposed to be. Because I don't want to bring it home and eat garbage. You know, it's already gone through a lot of times where The grower probably tossed it out if it didn't look right. You have the then the supermarket, uh, you know, manager looked at it and didn't put it out if it wasn't good. There's a lot of steps along the way of trying to get the best stuff out in front of us. So I go through, I pick out what I think is the best one, and I redeem that. I buy that. What Christ does though, I'm, I'm a fallen, sinful human being. I'm covered in Dirt, grime, bad spots, oblong, messed up. I, I'm rotten fruit. But God chooses that one. God chooses me. God chooses you guys. He doesn't look for the perfect one because there isn't. No, Jesus is the only perfect one. But He finds us and redeems us. He buys us and He bought us with that price, which was His blood on the cross 2,000 years ago. He buys us with a price and He knows our flaws. He knows our weaknesses and yet He still chooses to do that. He knows our iniquities back to the beginning when He forgives us. He comes in and saves us, redeems us. This Redemption is such an awesome, awesome thought that we should have on our minds constantly. God chooses us and our sinful sinful state. And he he goes on and says, talks about Israel twice again. Again, he's saying something twice. So where is he trying to go in this poem? He's trying to bring back all the times that God has redeemed Israel. Right off the top of my head, I go right to Judges, which is this story told over and over and over again people are in captivity the people of israel they're in captivity they're being downtrodden they're being beaten up they're being killed they're all in terrible spot they cry out to god god hears them god redeems them he brings up a redeemer a savior lowercase letters he didn't bring Jesus then but he's bringing redeemers and saviors to bring them out of that exile bring out of their terrible relationship and brings them back restores them They follow God for a while, focused on God, and then they start turning. They start drifting, and they go back into exile. And they cry out again years later. They're redeemed, and it's just this constant, secular motion. And that's us, too. I cry out to God, and within moments, it seems, I go back to the ways of the world. It's so simple to be that way here. We're bombarded on all sides by media and our culture and all these things. It's easy to go, well, yeah, I follow God, and then start drifting. And the psalmist is crying out and saying, I need God. I need to restore this natural order back to things. So his emotional response is, drove intellectual thinking that he was already instilled in him, that he knew in God there's forgiveness, in God there is hope, in God there's steadfast love, and in God there's redemption. So I chose this passage for, for two reasons. The first is, this is the gospel, straight up, way back before Jesus even came. God came. God is going to come this viewpoint, but God came and he redeemed us. We didn't deserve it. God fixed our sin problem. God came, restored the natural balance, did all these great things so that we could live forever. We could be forgiven. We could be in right communion with him forever. It is the most powerful love story of all time. I would say the most powerful story of all time, starting from Genesis chapter 1 when the plan was crafted and everything that happens after that, God made a plan and he stuck with it, which culminates in Jesus dying on a cross so that we can be saved. And the other reason I chose this passage was because wanted to, uh, it's a great example of how we can react in these times. The psalmist here, we don't know who it is. We can insert ourselves right into the psalm. We are sinful. We miss the mark. We fall down and stumble. We start drifting from our focus on Christ, on God. And what do we do in those circumstances? Do we cry out to God? Do we cry out to something else? Do we put our attention and start spiraling downward? Do we Use that, instead of crying out, start spiraling and and turn to bad things? Do we turn to drugs and alcohol, or to pornography, or to um, anger? Or what do we turn to in times that we're down? We're downtrodden from the pits of our soul. Do we have enough of a biblical knowledge, like the psalmist did here, to go, there's only one place I can turn, and that's the one true God. So that, that's the that's challenge, is to get rid of all of those lies that we tell ourselves. I know I tell myself lies. Oh, I, I did something wrong. I, I and did something. I took my focus off Christ. Well, I need to be better, so I'll, I'll wait at least a couple hours before I cry out to God. Maybe 48 hours, I need to be sin free before God will hear me. Or I just, I just sinned the same way I did before. I already asked for forgiveness yesterday for the same thing, so clearly I wasn't really asking for forgiveness. I did it again, so God doesn't want to hear from me. We start telling ourselves these lies that aren't biblically based. Is our firm foundation in Scripture about the one true God who in God there's forgiveness, there is hope, there is love, there is redemption. These four things can be our guiding compass, There's a lot more things, but this is the psalmist's interpretation of the gospel. Are we focused on those basic but complex biblical truths? Are they guiding us back to the cross? Are they pointing us to Christ? Or are we turning elsewhere? Because if we don't have a firm foundation in what's going on in the Bible, we can tell ourselves so many lies that God doesn't want us, that we're not good enough. We're not. But because of Jesus, we are. We can stand firm in that courtroom because Jesus has taken the blame for us. We have forgiveness, hope, love, and righteousness in the one true God. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you. We praise you for these examples of, of godly people that are people still. They, they sin. They have their faults. They have their iniquities. Yet they still turn to you in the midst of darkness, in the midst of their turmoil. They turn to you because they know in you they have forgiveness. In you they have hope. In you they have love. In you They are restored. They're bought with a price. And that price was the sweet, precious blood of Jesus Christ. In you, we have a guiding compass that we can look to God, look to Jesus, look to the Holy Spirit to be able to guide us in our everyday life. And we thank you for that. Help us this week have that mantra in our head. In you, there is hope. In you, there's forgiveness. In you, there is love. And in you, there is redemption. Praise you and he thank you. Amen. Um, that's written from Psalm 130. So let's stand and sing this together. I have an of how to get plugged in and how to.